We're going to look today at the text of Scripture that narrates the events that surround the anointing of a king in the dawn of a kingdom of Israel. I mentioned last time I entitled the series Twilight Kingdom. Uh, Twilight, a reference to the period of time just before sunrise, the darkest, always darkest before the dawn idea. And then kingdom, which is the central message of the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel is about the establishment of a theocratic monarchy, a kingdom under a king appointed by God. And 1 Samuel is a bridge between the dark anarchy of the days of judges and the anointing of King David. It's also eschatological. That is, it is ultimately points past David to the fullness of time when a child is born, a son is given. The government is upon his shoulders, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who reigns as king of heaven and earth. The way I'm going to approach the narrative many times through this series, which will take us through the end of the year, end of 2024, is by zooming in on events in the story and then zooming out at times to see the bigger picture of what God is doing in the bigger context, establishing the kingdom and what he's doing in redemptive history. Our story begins in the darkest of times in the history of Israel, the days before Israel had a king, when judges ruled the nation. There was no central government. There was no established leader. The indictment that God's word lays on the nation was that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Just prior to the opening of the book of Samuel, Israel is at war. And they're at war with their primary nemesis even to this day, the restless and war-loving Philistines. At that time, from the small town of Zorah, from the insignificant tribe of Dan, an obscure man by the name of Manoah and his barren wife were visited by an angel who declared that she would become the mother of a deliverer. And that boy was dedicated to God as a Nazarite. No razor would come to his hair. And in due time, a son was given to this couple who they named Samson. From an early age, Samson realized that he possessed remarkable strength. He accomplished superhuman feats. He judged Israel mightily for 20 years, gaining many victories over the Philistines. Samson finally would be killed, however, by his own folly. Many believe the book of Samuel begins in that season during Samson's rule. These are the darkest times in Israel since their slavery in Egypt. Written about in the final three chapters of the book of Judges. And Samuel picks up where Judges left off in a time of anarchy, disorder, that just cried out for a king. And the narrative of Samuel will bring about that realization. Chapter 1, which we'll look at today, divides into two parts, verses 1 to 8, which set the stage, and verses 9 to 28, which tell the story. And then we'll conclude by looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 2, which is a song of Hannah. I'll begin by reading the first seven verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is spoken up by an omniscient narrator. It was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram. Uh, 
Oham, son of Elihu, son of Tahu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year to the city, to, from his city, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, uh, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. The title of this message is A Son is Given to a Dysfunctional Family. For centuries, the Jewish people have celebrated the Sabbath by ushering it in the household on sundown on Friday evening with the lighting of the Shabbat candles. The Shabbat candles were lit by the matriarch of the home. This is an ancient practice that continues to this day. It was always a woman who would light the candles, inviting the Sabbath's light into the family's home. The Talmud, which is the ancient Jewish writings, records the reason for this. It says, the candle of God is the soul of man. Chava, or Eve, caused his death. Therefore, they handed over the mitzvah, or the good work, of lighting of candles to the woman. Similarly, the Zohar, which is another ancient Jewish book, says this, Chava, Eve, unwittingly expelled much of the divine light from this world in the Garden of Eden. It is therefore her duty to light the Shabbat candles as an attempt to restore what was lost. So it's fitting that the mother, who is the giver of life, would introduce light into the home. As we open up the book of Samuel, our story begins just as everyone here. Your story began with your mother. As chapter 1 opens, Israel's in the midst of spiritual darkness, And as this darkness begins now to give way to a rising sun, we begin our expedition toward the dawn of a kingdom with this obscure family in a remote location. Elkanah and his two wives, Penina and Hannah, from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. Whether they knew it or not, these hillbillies, if you would, from this remote area northwest of Jerusalem, whether they knew it or not, Elkanah was a Levite. This is a fact that few cared about at this time in Israel's history. The author of Samuel does not even record this fact, but the book of Chronicles does. I won't have you turn there, but Chronicles tells us that Elkanah is a descendant of Korah, and Korah is a descendant of Kohath, the son of Levi. So he was a priest, at least by birth. Since the Levites had no particular land to live in, they scattered. And in Elkanah's case, he lived in the hill country of Ephraim. The book of Samuel makes no reference to his Levitical heritage, simply because it takes place at a time 
when the priesthood was almost irrelevant. God was not speaking at this time. His people used the feasts of Israel not as a time to worship, but as a time to get drunk. The Holy Spirit leaves Elkanah's heritage out of the book of Samuel, interestingly, to be discovered by those who study the Bible and study the book of Chronicles. And you'll learn that as you study Chronicles. But it is important because it makes sense to our story. As we're going to eventually find out that Elkanah's son, Samuel, would train to serve as a priest. If you don't know this fact, it kind of makes you wonder what qualified Samuel to be a priest in the first place. We don't get long into chapter 1 of Samuel before we're introduced to our story's first hero, Hannah. Hannah was one of the two wives of Elkanah. Elkanah's other wife, Penina, was quite fertile. She had many children, but Hannah was barren. She could bear no children. Elkanah seems to favor Hannah, even though she could not bear children, which at that time in history uh, was considered crucial in in a marriage, in a family. In in verse 8, we see how Elkanah attempts to comfort his wife. Look at that in verse 8. This is, Elkanah is the first one to speak in the book of Samuel, and these are the words that he says. Elkanah, verse 8, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, Hannah's bitterness had nothing to do whatsoever with Elkanah, as far as we could tell, or her marriage. But Elkanah seems to take it personally. There's a sense in Elkanah's words that suggests that he might be feeling a bit slighted or unappreciated. When a husband is pleased with his wife, as Elkanah seems to be with Hannah, and his wife's countenance is continually showing that she is not pleased, the husband can take that personally. And you get that sense. Am I not, basically, am I chopped liver? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Maybe. Or maybe this is just another typical husband's failed attempt to try to figure out why his wife is sad. Whatever the case, Elkanah did take special care of Hannah. And we get the idea that he's a decent guy, he's trying his best to be a dutiful husband. But we cannot neglect the fact that he is a polygamist. By marrying more than one wife, he followed the culture Polygamy was acceptable in the culture, but it was never the revealed will of God in Scripture. And the problems in Elkanah's family begin with that. They can't be separated from this fact. He disobeyed God, and his dysfunctional family become the consequences. Well, Elkanah loved and at least tried to comfort Hannah. His other wife, Penina, who's called Hannah's rival, taunted her because of her barrenness. And this caused Hannah much distress for several several years. Penina seems to be the adversary here in this story. But realize, she too is Elkanah's wife. And her provocation of Hannah may be prompted by jealousy over over Elkanah's apparent preference of Hannah, right? This would irk anyone, you can imagine. Any wife would be irked by her husband preferring another person. This story kind of harkens back to Jacob and his two wives, Leah and Rachel. 
Rachel was the one that was loved, but God blessed Leah with children. If we zoom out for a moment, zoom out from the story, there's kind of an allegory that points to Twilight Kingdom. Twilight Kingdom comes into focus here. In the story, we have a woman lacking what her rival has in abundance. She, she desires to get what her rival has. Her husband understands her plight, offers words of comfort. They don't seem to work because she continues to be sad. And then finally in the story she gets, as we'll see, she gets what she asked for. So if we zoom out from Hannah for a minute, consider Hannah standing in for the nation of Israel. As, as they looked around at the rival nations around them, all of whom who had a king, and her husband, her maker, Yahweh, says to her, why is your heart sad, Israel? Am I not more to you than ten kings? Her special place in God as God's chosen people fails to comfort the people, and they still see just their lack. They still see what they don't have. So God hears and compassionately grants the request of the nation, giving the nation the king they desire. Zooming back in, let's pick up around verse 9, scene 2, act 1. Year after year, Elkanah and his family make this 15-mile pilgrimage across the hills of Ephraim to Shiloh. Shiloh is a city that's located today in what is called the West Bank. In Shiloh, there's a tabernacle, and this tabernacle has some a form of permanence to it. It remained in this location year after year, and it's called the Temple of the Lord. But it was not the actual temple. It was just a, a tabernacle, which was meant to be temporary. But it, had, it was in the same location for many years. Let's pick up the story in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So here in scene two of chapter one, Hannah and her husband are worshiping at Shiloh. It's the yearly feast. Hannah visits the temple where of all things she prays. She vows that if God would give her a son, she would dedicate that son to the Lord's service all the days of his life. Now one could look at this story and get the idea that this woman was obsessed with having a child. That's kind of our modern look at it. One might look at Hannah and consider her blessed, even without a child. She has a husband who loves her. They seem relatively well off. They're able to make these treks across the, the land every year. They, they seem to possess a genuine faith because they want to make this pilgrimage and worship at God's house. What does she have to be sad about? But we need to understand things were different at that time. The reason that having children, and in particular a son, she asked for a son to be given to her, the reason that is so important in those days was that every woman since Eve held out this hope that they might be the mother of the Messiah. 
When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God promised the woman that her seed would come and one day crush the serpent's head. And since then, children in the Old Testament were counted as a a blessing. God was said to have shown favor to a woman when he granted her children. But any astute student of scripture quickly discovers that God often chose barren women. If Hannah had only looked backward to say the story of Abraham and Sarah, having Isaac at the age of 90, or Rebecca, by all calculations, waiting 20 years before she gives birth to Jacob, or Jacob's barren wife, Rachel, or just a few years prior to this story, Manoah, the wife of Manoah, who gave birth to Samson. She might have been encouraged to see that God's key figures in history were often barren women. And this trend continues in the New Testament as well, where it is the barren wife of another Levite by the name of Zacharias. And Elizabeth, in her old age, births John, who we know as John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. Even Jesus himself is born under miraculous conditions from the womb of a virgin. So barrenness was actually Hannah's starting point. It's God's modus operandi, the, that humanity's total inability. That's his starting point. That's where things begin. Human beings are totally unable. We can look at Hannah and those who came before her and after her and take heart that although something may be impossible with men, it is possible with God. So you may be in a situation where you feel helpless, where you feel hopeless about a situation. That is no barrier for God to work. This is obvious in our salvation, right? If you're a Christian here today, you know you contributed nothing. You were totally depraved. You are utterly unable to do anything to merit your own salvation. But our utter inability was no barrier for God to save us, was it? Back to the story, zoom back in. Elkanah and Hannah are at Shiloh. Uh, The priest serving at Shiloh is a man by the name of Eli we learn is also judge of Israel at this time. He's also a priest. He sees Hannah moving her lips as she prayed. And of course he thinks she's drunk. Look at verse 12. As she continues praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you Go on being drunk. Put your wine away from you. Now, Hannah could have taken this as an insult. Here she is, of all things to do in the house of God, pray, praying, and the priest of God's house, God's man, perhaps so used to people not praying but getting drunk in the temple, doesn't even recognize prayer. Remember the times. Communication with God was rare. God was not speaking to men, and men were not speaking to God. But look at Hannah's reply at verse 15. Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So many things I could pull out there, but I just want to look at her humility. Think of Hannah's humility. First, she's provoked by Panina. She doesn't seem to want to get even. No vengeful spirit. And although she's deeply troubled, there's no sign of anger at God here. And in her interaction with Eli, again, we see humility. Think of yourself in that situation. Your husband doesn't really get why you're so bummed out. So you make an appointment with your pastor. And not only doesn't he get it, but he adds insult to injury by making some wild accusation. Put your wine away. What an uncharitable judgment by the man of God, no less. We can learn much from her example. How easily are you provoked to anger when you are unfairly treated? When you're misunderstood, do you think, I deserve better? Well, Hannah's gentle reply enlightens Eli. Look at verse 17. He answers, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Hannah left God's house confident that God heard her prayer. How do we know that? Her face was no longer sad. God hadn't given her, given her a son yet. There's no reason to think that when she got home that Penina was going to stop taunting her. But it's enough for Hannah that she prayed and could now trust a good God with her petition. She did her business with God. She pleaded her case. She made her vow. And now it's in the hands of God. Whether or not he would have answered Hannah as she wished, she went home from Shiloh different from past years. In the past, she went home and she continued to be sad. But this time it was different. She left with a peace. And her peace was based on the fact that she was trusting a good God. And brothers and sisters, this is where your peace lies today. Trusting in God's goodness. Trusting in God's faithfulness. As we'll see in a moment in her song in chapter 2, Hannah knew her God. He knew a God that exalts the humble and gives strength to the weak, and gives the barren children, raises the poor from the dust. When she realized this, her anxiety and her vexation was gone, and she could trust God. Because how could you not trust God? How could you not trust this God who blesses exalts the humble, gives strength to the weak, raises the poor from the dust. And I ask you the same thing. Do you believe that God has a good purpose for your life, that he is working out right now through difficult circumstances? If you really do, then why anxiety? Why vexation? Why the sadness? Go to God. Lay it before him. He'll carry all that for you. Now, the question might arise here about the vow. Was, was Hannah right to make this vow? Well, vows were had a place in Old Testament worship and prayer. We're not to think here that Hannah is bargaining with God, or worse, bribing God. 
God, if you give me this, I'll give it to you. She's simply dedicating that which already belongs to God for his service. Hannah knows that she's unable to bear children and that her only hope is if God opens her womb. And if he chooses to grant her this child, that child is his to give. So her vow, dedicating her son to the service of God, was not unusual. Right? What godly mother would not want her son serving God? So this is simply promising to God a gift which he gave to her in the first place. How do we apply Hannah's prayer today? Well, in one sense, we can't pray exactly like this. We don't make vows, but uh, Hannah's prayer is not appropriate. I mean, there is no one-to-one correlation. No one's called to be another Hannah. However, the principle is that your children, if you have children, belong to God. You do not hand them over physically to another person, but you give your life to raising them, to know God. So I ask the parents that are here, what is your greatest concern for your children? Or, if you don't have children, grandchildren, or nieces, or nephews. What's your greatest concern? Is your greatest concern that they become a famous sports icon? Is your greatest concern that they prosper financially, that they have a good home, that they have earthly success? Or are you primarily concerned about their godliness? Sometimes Christian couples who had no trouble prioritizing the kingdom of God until they have children. And then their children become their world. And you not only re- revolve your life around your children, but you start to change your spiritual priorities based on their preferences. But you're not to do this. You're to live for God. Make his, parents, make his priorities your priority and see your children joining you in that priority as you worship God. They're joining you in that. That means practically, let's put some practical legs on this, do not give in to the spirit of the age that Sundays belong to soccer practice or music rehearsal. No matter how good they are, you dedicate them to God's service. And that needs not only to be our attitude about children, but anything that God blesses us with. Money. Jobs, careers, families, houses, really everything that we have is from God, right? So let's learn from Hannah to give back to him what he gives us. Hannah prayed, made a vow that she knew would please God. Another lesson here. When we pray, we should pray for that which we know will please God. If we commit something to him, It's not like you're bargaining with God. You don't want to make a deal with God. That was not Hannah's heart. We know it was not Hannah's heart because God gave her the peace that passes understanding. The peace of God always attends a godly prayer. And she knew that God heard her, whether he answers yes or no. Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
This is what Hannah experienced. Hannah experienced Philippians 4, 6, and 7. How much more ought we, brothers and sisters, in the New Covenant? We have a guarantee in our writings in the New Testament that God hears your prayer. We're granted immediate access to a throne of grace. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Hannah knew this, but she didn't know it like we know it. We have the God's guarantee of it. But yet she knew it was right. She boldly approached the throne of grace. And there she found her burden lifted. And that's where our burdens are lifted, brothers and sisters, at the throne of grace. Let's go to verse 19. Verse 19. They arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. This is what she asked for. But notice what it says here. The Lord remembered her. If we look back at Hannah's prayer, it was this. Lord Before she even prays for a son, she says, look at the affliction of your servant and remember me. Do not forget your servant. The Lord remembered Hannah. And because he remembered her, she forgot her sorrow. What sorrow do you have in your life? Can you, like Hannah, cast your care upon the Lord? Trust that he will remember you and find rest and find peace, whether or not you see the answer now? Well, God heard and answered Hannah's prayer and graciously gave her a son, who she named Samuel, verse 20. And in due time, by the way, that idea of due time means that there was not, it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like that year. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Her name, the choice of the name Samuel in Hebrew, Shemuel, literally means God hears. But we can't ignore something here in the text. You might skip over it if you're just kind of reading, but as you're studying, something stands out. She doesn't say, I called him Samuel, for the Lord heard my prayer, which that would have made sense. Shemuel... Call him heard of God because God, the Lord, heard Shema, my prayer. But she says this. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. That word asked for sounds like Shemuel, but it's actually Sha'al, a different word completely. One word means asked for. The other means heard. To ask for something and to hear something are two different things. Why would Hannah say that she named him Samuel and then offer the etymology that points to a different name, another name? Verse 27 and 28, also interestingly, Sha'al is twice used here, three times actually by Hannah. In verse 27 and 28, the Lord has granted, she says this to Eli, the Lord has granted me my petition that word, my petition, or what I asked for, Sha'al, that I made of him. Therefore, I have given him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And that word given is, again, a root of Sha'al, but it's Sha'ul, 
identical to the name of Israel's first king, Saul. We know him as Saul. So Hannah is basically saying in verse 28, as long as he lives, he is Saul. The Holy Spirit is doing something here. Let's zoom out. Let's look at Twilight Kingdom again. I believe the author is foreshadowing the central message of the book of Samuel here. Here at Samuel's birth, it's, it's, he's, he's giving the indication that this is not even about Samuel. This story is not about Hannah. This is not about Samuel, but it's about a kingdom. And as we're going to see in the coming chapters, Israel will ask for Sha'al, a king. And God will give Sha'ul what they asked for. Same words. And Samuel is going to be that chosen instrument to perform this major role in redemptive history of anointing this king of Israel, Shaul, Saul. So it's interesting, the story of Samuel's birth is not even about Samuel's birth. It's a microcosm of the story of Saul's arise to become king. It's a microcosm, which then is a microcosm, if you really want to zoom away, to the king of kings, the story of the king of kings. The birth of Samuel takes place at the twilight of a new kingdom, and it foreshadows the coming of that kingdom. It's quite a peculiar story. You talk, you, if the central message of the, uh, of the story is this king arises, you wouldn't expect it to start where it's starting with these small beginnings. I mean, even like um, the Lion King, right? In the Lion King, uh, the, the king, the, the king of the jungle, the lion, I forgot his name, the father. Mufasa, Mufasa right? Mufasa has Simba, and, and at the very beginning of the Lion King, he presents Simba. And what is Simba? Simba is the next king. That makes sense. But we're not even dealing with that here. This is, Samuel's not the next king. While we're zoomed out, think about this. Hannah prays silently from her heart. Eli looks at the outward appearance. He sees her mouth moving. He looks at the outward appearance. This is exactly what the Lord will say to Hannah's son, Samuel, one day of King Saul. The people's choice for king. The people asked for him, and God gave him. Why? Because they looked at his height. He was tall. They looked at his strength. And he says this, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Eli looked at the mouth moving, but God saw Hannah's heart. Zooming back in, Act 1, Scene 3, verses 21 to 28 now. Focus on the fulfillment of Hannah's vow. There's about a three-year delay here before Samuel is sent to the temple as Hannah stays home each year to nurse her son. Hannah tells Elkanah of her intention to hand Samuel over to the service of the temple after weaning him, which would be about three years at that time. Elkanah gives kind of a half-hearted reply. You really don't know what's on his mind. Look at verse 22. Hannah tells him, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. 
unusual comment. I mean, Elkanah doesn't seem thrilled with this decision. Why? I mean, there's a number of thoughts. One is that maybe he thought uh, his wife would change her mind because of the three years she was with her son. Another is, remember, this is Samuel's, Samuel is his firstborn of his beloved wife. Now, he had other children, but this was like his Joseph to Jacob. Samuel might, might have become Elkanah's favorite son. But alas, at the end of the day, whether fully on board or not, he does not withhold him from going to the temple to serve his destiny as priest. So after three years, Hannah and Elkanah are again at the temple, and this time they depart. As Hannah testifies in verses 27 and 28, she says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have given him to the Lord. As he lives, he is lent or given to the Lord. So in this final scene of chapter 1, you really can't separate it from chapter 2, because at the very same time, Hannah breaks out into a song. Just like a good musical is punctuated by an appropriate song, tells the story, then they sing the story. We're interrupted momentarily here with a song. But this is more than just a musical interlude. This song is prophetic. She sings of the dawn of a kingdom, of the coming of a king, how that king would execute justice. I want to read it in its entirety. I'll stop briefly along the way. First ten verses of 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's song. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. The horn there, perhaps foreshadowing the horn of oil that Samuel would use to anoint Saul and later anoint David as the king of Israel. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Who does she have in mind? Maybe Penina? My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like you. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. The rock describes the steadfast nature of God applied to Christ in the New Testament. Talk no more very proudly. By the way, those words, very proudly in Hebrew, two of the same word, it's geboa, geboa. It literally means tall, tall. Talk no more of tall, tall. What does that foreshadow? Maybe Saul in his height, who stood above the, the crowd, uh, that was the characteristic that was desirable for a king. Or what was another tall character in the book of Samuel? Goliath, who we'll get to. Going on, let not arrogance come from your mouth. Again, maybe Penina in mind there. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. For the bows of the mighty are broken. The bows of the mighty, that's a, a theme that comes up time and again in Samuel. The mighty actually points ahead to David's words in the beginning of 2 Samuel. David says about Saul, how the mighty have fallen. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn or, or desolate. 
Here, God is say, she's saying God is calling into things, calling into being that which is not. In his justice, he reverses the circumstances. We have a, a modern worship song that says, let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich, because of what the Lord has done. He's reversing circumstances. Verse 6, the Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, the grave, and raises up. There's the resurrection, a reference to the resurrection in the Old Testament. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. What does that sound like? The call to worship this morning, Psalm 113, very same words. To make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will not guard the feet of his faithful ones. I'm sorry, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. Again, this theme in Samuel, not by might, not by height, not by armor, not by weapons. If you know the story, you understand what I'm saying. Not by these things, but in the name of the Lord. So whether it's Penina or Saul or Goliath or Amnon or Absalom, Samuel teaches us that kingdoms are not built by human might. Verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah's psalm has been called a psalm in the verses you heard earlier, 7 to 9 of Psalm 113. It is a psalm. She praises God for salvation, holiness, sovereignty, justice, power, and grace. It's been called Hannah's Magnificat, uh, paralleling the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which begins with those words, my soul magnifies the Lord. In Latin, that's Magnificat. So it's been called Hannah's Magnificat because of the parallels uh, to Luke 1, this hymn of praise, which praises God for his mighty deeds, that he, that he abases the proud and the powerful and he exalts the humble. I'm just going to read it. It's from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 53. This is the song of Mary when she finds that she's going to give birth to Jesus. A son is given. She sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and the spirit, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in, his, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of a humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You see the parallels? Hannah's song is sung from her experience, Mary from hers. What God has done for them they sing of. But it's more than just what God has done for them. You see the largeness here, right? It's growing. 
The largeness of God's power, it's extending to all the earth. Her experience of God's saving help is kind of like this demo scale model of what God does for the world. And brethren, it's the same for you and I. Think about what God has done in your life. Think about what God has done to us. We are all insignificant obscure folks from this small corner of the world that we call New Jersey, a land that not many people have much good to say of. But God has worked powerfully in your life to save you, to heal you, to deliver you. Ponder those things. Ponder what Yahweh has done for you. And then remember, it's not just you But he does this. This is how he works all over the world. In every nation, in every age, he accomplishes his purpose. And those irritants, he's working together for your good as well. Do you have a panina in your life? Someone bullying you? A higher up provoking you in the office or in your school? Maybe you're part of a dysfunctional family. Remember these promises. Not by might shall man prevail. Are you seeing the wicked prosper all over the world today? Remember, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. God will justly reverse every circumstance. That's what happens in the kingdom. Everything is turned on its head. Everything is turned upside down in the kingdom. Jesus said it in Luke 13.30 when he was speaking about the kingdom. He says, some who are last will be first and the first last. So power and privilege and wealth will all sink to the bottom and the meek will inherit the earth. That's what kingdom is about. That's what the, and we're seeing just the dawn of it here. Pastor Eli is preaching the end of it in, in Revelation 11. It's no surprise that the book of Samuel, which chronicles the dawn of the kingdom, would find pride, arrogance, strength, power humbled. Penina, Saul, Goliath, and on and on. Absalom. The mighty all fall. But he who is truly mighty has done a great thing. And that great thing he has done for you is a microcosm of what he's doing all over the world as he saves people through the gospel, as he delivers people from their sins, as he crushes his enemies, sin and death, and finally, soon, Satan under your feet. So are you feeling small? Feeling insignificant? You're in good company. Are you in a dysfunctional family? Hannah's story is your story. It starts out small, insignificant, obscure. Think about how peculiar it is, again, to to open up the story of the rise of a kingdom with the story of a birth of someone maybe related to the kingdom, but not, not the king himself. Don't forget, kingdoms rise. Kingdoms rise from mustard seeds. Jesus taught us this. Kingdoms rise from mustard seeds and microscopic yeast folded into dough. And Hannah's story demonstrates this, that God works out his purposes through humble means. So don't despise those small beginnings. 
Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Let the rich grow richer in this world. He will raise the poor from the dust, the needy from the ash heap. Let the tall Sauls and Goliaths tower above everyone and receive all the accolades of men. He will break the bow of the mighty. You let your your calling, brethren, according, according to 1 Corinthians, your calling is that not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That's our promise in this kingdom. Hannah concludes her song in verse 10 by looking to the end of the age. When the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, he will give his strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What king? There's no king at this time. She's prophesying. She's She's pointing ahead. She's pointing to David and beyond. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The end of time, the enemies of Yahweh will be broken into pieces. How? By his king, his anointed, his Christ. Jesus said the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. And this is important. Listen to this. In John chapter 5, verses 20, verse 22 and 24, the father judges no one given all judgment to the Son. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I ask you today, have you heard the words of Jesus? Are you believing in him today? Are you trusting in him today? Are you laying your life and trusting his finished work on the cross in your place? Or are you self-reliant, strong, and proud, trusting in your abilities, trusting in your intellect, trusting that you're going to make it your way? Remember, he will exalt the humble. The one who trusts in Jesus has eternal life, does not come into judgment. But I also have to warn you that there is a day coming when there will be judgment. When Jesus will no longer present himself as Savior, but as judge. And if you are not with him, you're going to find his strength to be overwhelming. So bend the knee now. Submit to him as your Savior now, rather than your judge later, because your knee is going to bow one way or the other. The day is coming when, the tr- when he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Come to him today, follow Jesus, surrender your pride, surrender your arrogance, surrender your self-sufficiency, and bow to his humility and love. As in the final scene of a movie, very often, it zooms out into the sky. I'm going to close this message not only by zooming past the narrative, out of the narrative, but zooming out past Twilight Kingdom to the one to whom all of this points. The story of Samuel's birth foreshadows the birth of Jesus Christ. Both stories begin in a remote location, uncelebrated, obscure, a couple living humbly before God, old little town of Bethlehem. 
both Samuel and Jesus, born under miraculous circumstances by God's intervention. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Both born in a season of darkness, at a time when God was silent among his people, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And just like the matriarch who lights the Shabbat candles to bring in the light, it would be the seed of the woman, Mary, who would birth the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Both Samuel and Jesus had godly mothers who sang praise to God for granting them a son. Both were dedicated from birth, served in the temple as children. Samuel would become the one who would anoint Israel's king David, beginning the kingdom that would last forever. That's the initial step toward establishing the royal throne of David. And it begins how? With the barren wife of a Levite. 1,000 years later, another barren wife of another Levite would give birth to the very one who would anoint the king, Jesus, in his baptism. Now, Samuel was a great man. Samuel was a righteous man. He was like every human being, however, he fell short. Both kings he would anoint would fall. But another son was given a thousand years later, and the government would be on his shoulders. Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the, the Melech Olam, the king of the universe, will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. And as Pastor Eli spoke from the Lord earlier, in a world that with such political upheaval and corruption and war, this idea that Jesus Christ is the king, the ruler of kings and presidents, that he is alive and reigning over Biden and Putin and Zelensky and Netanyahu and Abbas and Hamas and Hezbollah and Israel. How? Because Jesus beat death. He rose from the dead and God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every other name, that the name of Jesus every knee might bow. What a comfort that is, brethren. 